0: Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay
1: doors, please. Help. Hello. Hello there. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing really well. Nice to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you too. And who who am I meeting? Well, you're meeting a Keating. My name is Brian Keating. I am a professor of astrophysics and cosmology at the university of california san diego and the host of the into the impossible podcast as well
0: okay so you are an expert in space
1: i'm a space expert i study physics astronomy cosmology the origin of the universe and the evolution of what's going to happen to the universe in just a few short billion years (laughs) (laughs) the uh, the
0: origin of the universe. So maybe you can answer the question that I have wanted to be answered since the beginning of my existence. What happened before the Big Bang? Mm.
1: What was there before the Big Bang? Yeah. That is the $1 million question. And I say $1 million because that's how much money you win if you win a Nobel Prize. So if we can answer that question with the observatory, if you're watching this, there's an observatory, a bunch of little telescopes in the background. Uh, that is the Simons Observatory, which is designed to answer your question, Leon. It's designed to answer the question of, as I say, what happened on the Tuesday before the Big Bang? Mm-hmm. There are some Uh, Such as a famed uh, cosmologist, Stephen Hawking, who said that question is meaningless. You can't even ask the question, not let alone answer it, because it's nonsensical to speak about time before the existence of time itself. So, how could there be a before or an after when time itself came into existence, according to Professor, late great Stephen Hawking, coming up on four years since he passed away? And others say, no, 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 Stephen. He was wrong about many things. He made many bets in his life, lost them, including uh, wages, wagers, such as you know, subscriptions to Playboy magazine and very expensive bottles of alcohol that he lost to his uh, everyone that he bet. And that is to say, no, there was something that happened before the Tuesday that our universe began. And that event was a cataclysmic event as well, very much like a Big Bang in reverse, sort of a big crunch. So, they're competing philosophies, they're competing interpretations, but Leon, the hard part is there were no eyewitnesses. There's no direct evidence from that epoch. We're talking about at least as far back as 13,800,000,000 years ago, when our current universe mm-hmm. began. Question is, was there a universe 13,800,000,000 and one years before that? And that is the perhaps hottest question in all of science, in my opinion.
0: Um, wow. So I'm just going to go all out here and ask Mm -hmm. you questions that I know are not answerable, but maybe they are. So what, (laughs) what 50 trillion years ago, what was
1: there? There may have been nothing. There may have been absolute absence of... Not only matter, such as you know protons and neutrons and my favorite, the crouton, but there could also be an absence of time itself. And even if there was a beginning, Leon, if you think about it, imagine for one second, the universe did come into existence at a specific date. And you could actually, if you had a calendar at that time, you could go back and find out, oh, it was you know, March 4th, uh, you know, negative 13 billion years ago, right? let's say you could do that. But now ask the question for one second, how does a second proceed when time itself comes into existence? So to answer your question, first, you have to define what is time, right? Because you're asking me to go back in time, perhaps before time existed, perhaps there was a notion of time, perhaps the universe existed and time existed too, for all eternity, for an infinite amount of what we now conceive of as time, but time is very tricky. It's a very tricky quantity. It's in some sense very mysterious because there is no unified definition of time. Some say very simply, almost like a Zen koan, they say time is what a clock measures. And then what is a clock You know, made of? It's something that measures time. So time is change. Some people say change is related to something called entropy, which we can discuss. And some say in the absence of either one, you have an emergence of time just as we have an emergence of temperature. If you think about it, imagine you're in a room right now. Are you in LA right now, Leah? Yes, I am. So LA is the same as San Diego. It's about 70 degrees outside not to make people jealous you know watching on the East Coast or wherever in Europe. it's about 70 degrees, beautiful sunshine, no clouds in the sky and uh, and now you you zoom in in the room that you're in. You're in a room. It's filled with gas molecules, filled with oxygen, a, little nit- a lot of nitrogen, other you know, water vapor, et cetera. Now, zoom in with the thermometer and put it, move it around the room. It'll pretty much be constant, a little bit warmer near where you are. It'd be 98.6, hopefully. You're, uh, you're looking quite healthy. Uh, maybe if there's a window, it'll be a little bit warmer, colder, perhaps. And now keep zooming in to the size of a molecule and then ask, well, what's the temperature of that molecule? You actually can't define that. In other words, the concept of temperature is what's called emergent. It's a property of a collective, just as the properties of a beehive cannot purely be understood from the properties of individual insects, but instead only emerge when considered as a collective. Same is true of temperature, and temperature is intimately related to this concept of motion, Motion is a type of change. The molecules are in motion. When you stop their motion, you bring them to absolute zero. They do not move at all. And there is complete order. And these notions, time, temperature, and entropy are uniquely interrelated. And yet you cannot give a unique, uh, all-encompassing definition of all of these. And it just boggles the mind that we take for granted these notions of time, of space, of energy, of temperature. We take it for granted. But we, and I'm not even talking about individual lay people like yourself, I'm talking about experts. We just take it for granted. We go about our day. But in reality, these are the reasons that I got into science to answer these most mysterious questions about the nature of reality. And the more that we learn, the more we realize how much more there is still to learn, even about a question as basic, in some sense, as the question you asked me, what happened you know, an incomprehensible amount of time before the Big Bang? I think I just became... 1.7% cleverer after
0: listening to what you just said, um, but not clever enough to fully understand what you just said, right? Um, so why did you? Why do you do what you do? Why did you? It seems that you've dedicated. I mean, I don't know who you are, right? But yeah. it
1: seems that you've dedicated your life to this. Why? I think it's the most fascinating thing a human being can do. I'm acutely aware of my own mortality, in that we only have a certain amount of time, lifetime. We only have a certain amount of attention. We only have a certain amount of innocence of of protecting the things that we are uniquely able to do: to be parents, to be you know teachers, to be lovers, to be whatever. In my case, um, you know, hopefully not all three at the same time. But uh, but in my case. I want to suck out of life all that it has to offer, which means exercising this three pound supercomputer that all of us human beings are given uniquely. You know, Leanna, you know, it's not commonly appreciated. The name of the human species is homo sapien. What does homo sapien mean? It means man who has wisdom or knowledge, but what what does he have knowledge of? Obviously, women too. Women probably have more wisdom, but what do they have knowledge of? We're the only creature. Did you ever think about this? As much I don't know if you have any pets. I've got a couple of, of dogs, cats, whatever. They don't know that their life is finite. Only human beings know that life is finite. Only you and I come know that we come with an expiration date. And so I knew I've known that for a very long time. And I don't want to waste my time doing stuff that is fundamentally aberrant or taking me away from my core mission, which is to learn as much while I can. Teach as much while I can as an educator, as a professor, and as a parent, not just of my biological children, which I'm blessed to have, but of ideological children to get people as interested and in curious. My YouTube channel, my motto is ABC always be curious. Because curiosity you do with no expectation of reward. I've always been curious since I was a kid. It sounds like you were too. You asked these questions, you said, for as long as you've existed. <laughs> that's a fundamental, unique aspect of human beings. i talk talked to a lot of biologists and neuroscientists and sometimes on uh, my YouTube channel, and they'll often say, you know, the human animal, blah, blah, blah. And I'll stop them. I'm like, no, 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 we're not an animal. We may be animated and that we can move and we can do the things that animal means, but we're intrinsically different. There's something unique about what we have, this knowledge that we hear with a perishable expiration date. So I want to take, make the most of it. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Wow.
0: Do you think that we will find an energy source? This is a random question, but you seem pretty clever, so I'm going to ask you. You Do you think that we will find an energy source... That
1: can take us to different galaxies like they do in star trek mm. um i don't think the issue is energy it's actually not an issue of energy it's um and maybe i could reinterpret your question to not mean other galaxies necessarily because i think their mission was to go throughout our galaxy okay. i'll take a step back okay. the universe our solar system is comprised of eight planets when i was a kid it was nine pluto got the boot uh but but nevertheless there are eight planets in our solar system. Uh, our solar system, our planets orbit around the sun. In our galaxy, our galaxy is made of a hundred billion suns or more, each one with at least eight, probably thousands of planets or asteroids, planetary bodies, all of which, you know, in some cases could have supported life potentially at some uh, era in their existence. And and therefore, the universe is quite big, but uh, but it's much bigger than our galaxy. And the problem is our galaxy is enormous. It's it's almost incomprehensibly big. And then you start to think, well, there's other galaxies. And related to what I study is a concept, Leon, as mind-blowing as any of that, which is that there may be other universes. We'll get into that. In just a <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll reinterpret your question. Is there a possibility of human beings traversing our galaxy, going boldly where no man has gone before a woman, right? Um, so that is very much a possibility. That which is not forbidden in physics is mandatory. (laughs) In other words, if it's not impossible, it happens somewhere, somehow. Now, there are no laws that prevent us from doing that. I've had on the famous Carl Sagan's uh, widow. Her name is Ann and she participated in some of Carl Sagan's exploits, and she told me a story on the interview I did with her. And it was about how she recorded her brainwaves just a few weeks after falling in love with Carl Sagan, they recorded it onto this golden disc, a record made of solid gold, affixed to a spacecraft called Pioneer. Pioneer was launched decades ago, and it flew out of our solar system. It's actually on a mission to some star right now. Now, it, it's not going to do the same kinds of high-resolution photographs or you know dig up uh, you know p- parts of some planet, but it's actually uh, the first kind of inverse meteor. You know, meteors. have you ever seen a meteor there in LA? It's a little hard, but um, uh, but you'll see these shooting stars. Those are chunks of space rocks traveling from our solar system, impacting our atmosphere at fantastic velocities amid tens of thousands of miles per hour. They slam in with such explosive force, they light up and they provide this amazing, beautiful sight. Well, human beings, for the first time just in the last few decades, have had in the billion years of history of earth are now doing invert. We're shooting out chunks of our planet into the universe. And some of them are on a voyage to the stars. So it's completely possible. Now these don't contain people um, just yet. And their energy is purely chemical. Uh, You know, or some, some cases they have nuclear energy generators to generate um, uh, electricity, but not to generate thrust. But, um, but, but there's nothing that impedes us. From constructing a nuclear powered rocket or an ion drive or something like that that could accelerate at modest accelerations. It doesn't take, you know, very long to accelerate to very high velocities. The problem again, Leon, is the size of the galaxy. It is enormous. We are so we have a galaxy that traveling at the speed of light, which no physical object can reach, would take over a hundred thousand years to cross it. At the speed of light. And then there's a problem of well, once you get where you want to go, you have to slow down. And unless you want to be, you know, splattered like a bug on a windshield, you have to do so gracefully and gradually. And that takes even, you know, maybe just as long. So you're looking at things that far exceed the human lifespan um, by thousands of times. And and yet it's not impossible. The question is, would we want to do it? Or, or would we do something much more simple, which is to um, have this type of a situation that you and I are enjoying. In other words, a digital experience becoming digital nomads, vagabonds traversing the galaxy with almost all the same experiences that we you and I are having right now. It would be nice to be in person. I don't know why we're not. We're close. I guess they didn't want to ruin the surprise, and you know you might have canceled the interview, but but anyway, uh, <laughs> the point being, what is experience, other than maybe mainly chemical signals? perceived by visual sensors, by touch, by hearing, and then transmuted into chemical signals that enter into your nervous system and then are perceived as physically tangible or whatever. But with the rate of progress that we're we're seeing right now, there's nothing that could prevent us from having a fully virtual uh, metaverse type experience, traveling the galaxy, exploring it, Without ever leaving the comfort of our podcast studios, so I think that's another way to look at it. Is it the same if your body doesn't go with you? Well, what is your body if not a chemical sensory processing kind of um, uh, center attached to this three-pound supercomputer that no human being can ever replicate? <laughs> so I ask you, you know, would would you uh, would you take that? Or would you take the possibility of having to be cryogenically suspended for a hundred thousand years at the minimum, and then hopefully reawakened on another planet? I don't know. I would take probably the, the, the former one.
0: Well, I would certainly watch the, <laughs> the, the, the like metaverse version of it. Right. I mean, that would just be yeah beyond incredible. I mean, are you really saying that, that that's possible? That you could put again. This is a very crude way of saying it, right? But you could put a camera on a rocket ship, send it somewhere, and that
1: camera would work fifty trillion miles away. Well, so there. So that that was um, in part what I was saying. But but actually, even simpler than that, in some ways, you and I didn't send cameras to each other, right? We sent a web link. Yeah, you know, Eric, uh, your your wonderful producer sent me this wonderful thing, and 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 your team is is phenomenal. They just sent me encrypted data. In other words, it's your data that I am interacting with. I'm not interacting with you. I didn't send you a camera microphone. You didn't send me one. Although I'll accept one because you have a great setup there and I love your production quality. But if you were to do that, no, we're just saying we have either visual sensors or if we could communicate with some other alien civilization, the first thing that we'd want to know about is what they're like, what their civilization's like, what their technology is like. And, you know, how much are they like our our civilization? Do they have a society? Do they have an order? Do they have the same genetic material that we have? Um, do they have affiliation between successive genetic lines and themselves? In other words, like hereditary kinship. Uh, is it completely different? Is it like insects that like self-reproduce? One individual becomes a drone and that just continues? Or is it unique like we are? with, um, you know, uh, duplicate sets of copies of genetics that improve over time through natural selection and evolution. We don't know. So, I guess what I'm saying is we'd, we'd need for there to be, for, for us to experience it, um, we would need to have another caller at the end of the line. On the other hand, there's immediately plans by colleagues and friends of mine to to actually do what you suggested a few minutes ago, send little cameras with sensors whizzing by foreign uh, star systems, and and then radioing and telemetering back the signals from those voyages. Uh, again, very far removed from us, from us physically getting in a rocket, uh, but then much faster or perhaps a quarter of the speed of light. And to reach our nearest neighbor solar system called Proxima Centauri would take these probes about 20 years, traveling at about one-fifth the speed of light. And that is being funded right now By a team led by a Russian billionaire. I almost said oligarch, but he's not an oligarch, Yuri Milner. He's a tech investor up in the Bay Area. And he's funding a project called Breakthrough Starshot to do just this. And and so, yes, we're approaching this on many different fronts. Um, And then the third and final frontier, if you like, is to ask questions about the value and virtue of simulating other worlds. In other words, uh, us learning about these other worlds through new technology like the James Webb Space Telescope recently launched are the types of telescopes that I build in the Atacama Desert and the South Pole Antarctica, where I've been uh, twice, taking those types of cosmological realizations and sending them uh, and and then asking questions about what those virtual worlds could be like. That's another way of exploring. It's purely digital. And so, uh, all these have different merits. All of them will happen at some point or another. Um, whether or not that's on a timescale that's convenient for you and me to, to you know buy a ticket is, is still an open question, though.
0: Hold on. You just said something. You said that you build telescopes. Yes. Okay. What type of telescopes do you build? And what is the most amazing thing you've ever seen
1: on one of these telescopes? So we build telescopes that are designed not to provide images to the human eye or even pitch pretty pictures in a sense. We are listening using radio waves to the most violent process in, in the history of in the entire universe, which is the birth of the universe itself. We are using radio telescopes. And if you're watching on YouTube, uh, you can see them behind me. These are dishes that look like satellite TV dishes, except they're much, much bigger. Some of them are 20 feet across. And they're used to detect the afterglow of the big bang itself and in so doing we are aspiring to determine whether or not the universe came into existence because of what is called a quantum fluctuation a disturbance in the force where this force in this case are the laws of quantum mechanics itself if the universe is unique in a one-time affair it had a start date and actually has an expiration date. We can discuss that a different time perhaps, but it's start date is like it's birthday. And if I, I, I've asked probably hundreds of people this call, I'll ask you, I'll put on my podcast. Now you're in the guest seat, Liam. If I ask you, sir, what's the favorite day or most important day on the calendar to you? What do you tell me?
0: Hmm. The day... That I feel and share the most love, whatever that day may be.
1: That's beautiful. That is just delightful. And I love to hear it. But I asked for a calendar day. So you have to tell me some event or something akin to an event that's recurring that you would look forward to. Um, January the 1st. Okay. Very good. Very good. So what is January 1st? It's the start of a new year. Yes. January is named after the Roman God Janus. What does Janus do? Janus, the Roman God, looks forwards and backwards and represents the portal to another uh, dimension. Now, January 1st is just, is traditionally in our secular calendar, the beginning of the year. So, no, you told me. Most people will say that. They'll say Christmas. They'll say their anniversary, their kid's birthday, their own birthday. You know, They're kind of self-centered like me. What are those? What do they all have in common? Only one thing they're a beginning. They represent some beginning, some beginning that launched a new perception of who they are or what's important to them. So they look forward to. Um, and so it's a natural human desire to want to understand origins. That's what I'm getting at. People want to know what their origin was. If it's their birthday, it's an origin of a year. What's looking ahead? What do we learn from the past? It's an origin, it's a portal. And in so doing, I think it reveals a very fundamental and beautiful human trait that we love and fascinated by origin. So that's what my telescopes seek to do. We're trying to determine by looking at this heat remnant left over from the formation of the first elements that ever existed in the universe. We're asking the question, was the universe unique? Was there a universe before our universe? How violent was its birth? And then, as I said, what will happen deep into the future? Along with other questions, such as what is the universe made of predominantly, we don't know. We don't know 95% of what makes up our universe. (laughs) We know that the universe has a certain amount of energy. Einstein's famous theory and equation, E equals MC squared, says for any amount of energy, you can equate it to a mass, the m times the speed of light squared. We don't know what 95% of that E is. And in the mass M term, we don't know. 80% of what the mass is. And yet we confidently predict things like the age of the universe. We know that. We know uh, how how fast the universe is expanding. We know what it's made of in terms of the ordinary matter that we're made up of. Um, And yet there are all these mysteries that we don't know about. And so these telescopes are designed to take the first and, and, and oldest light in the universe, which is now in the form of a heat or radio wave called a microwave background. We're using that. To discern the imprimatur of the very first fingerprints of creation. And we're hoping to have this deployed in Chile uh, by the end of 2024. And currently, we have a project that we are now sort of competing against, but it was a project that Mm -hmm. I started a long time ago when I was in LA at Caltech. And that's called Bicep, and that's at the South Pole in Antarctica. And we actually claimed we did discover the origin of the universe on uh, on St. Patrick's Day, 2014. And I wrote a book about it, uh, and it's called Losing the Nobel Prize. And it's a story about how scientists and my own ambition, a memoir of what it feels like to do what I feel is the most important science you could do, and come very close to the highest accolade human beings have ever constructed. It's called the Nobel Prize. And come up short. For reasons that are related to the fact that human beings are are who the people that do science, people think science is done by robots or automatons or or whatever. No, despite the stereotypes to the contrary, you know, there's a famous joke. Leon, I don't know if you've heard it, but you know, how do you know a scientist is outgoing? Well, he looks at your shoes when he talks to you, (laughs) and uh, that's you know, has some validity as a lot of jokes do, but, but in this case, it, it, uh, it is really undermining the fact that we who do science are also human beings and we have desires and biases and prejudices and goals and wonder and curiosity, everything that's good about children and their wonderment, but also everything that's bad, you know, children, (laughs) I've got a few children and, you know, they're wonderful. They're inquisitive, they're curious, they're imaginative, they're playful they're delightful. They don't play well with others. They're jealous. They're petty. They they take their ball and go home. <laughs> you got to realize that people are intrinsically of, like Janice, two sides. They have a good side. They have a bad side. And some of those things can come to play as they did for me in this story that I tell in losing the Nobel prize. Um, how did we come to understand what we need to do better next time? And that in this case is to build an instrument that can see what we want to say, but also see some of the things we don't want to see and separate those things out. So those are the types of telescopes that I built. They are sensitive to invisible signals, not visible light. And they can be uniquely probative of the properties that led to the universe as we observe it today. So, so what is the oldest thing you've seen or heard? So we measured the impact uh, of the uh, what's called dark matter. How much dark matter? So there's ordinary matter that we're made of, like protons, neutrons, croutons. And those uh, ordinary matter is dwarfed, it turns out, by something called dark matter. Dark matter simply means stuff that weighs something but has no other interaction. It doesn't heat up, it doesn't cool down, it doesn't bump in and, and interact in an ordinary way as ordinary, you know, baseball does or, or an apple pie. No, it doesn't behave that way. And yet it keeps our universe together, it's sort of the glue, this invisible glue that was only discovered uh, about 60 years ago, and yet outnumbers ordinary matter like you and I are made of five to one. So we measured in using not a scale, but we used these very distant galaxies, very far away galaxies, and we used them, and they were sort of in the foreground, um, and we used them. As, uh, as kind of like lenses, it's called gravitational lensing. So these galaxies are made of matter, ordinary protons and neutrons, plus dark matter, much more dark matter, five times as much dark matter. And, uh, and then they act to bend the path of light as life, tra- light travels from the early universe, this cosmic microwave background the ancient, most ancient light in the universe, as it travels towards my telescopes, it got bent a tiny amount, just like a lens. If I put a lens between you and me, I would look distorted. And we reconstructed that. And my colleagues and I were able to effectively weigh how much dark matter there was in these galaxies at this enormous distance. And uh, we were doing that um, uh, you know, also in an effort alongside the effort to measure the earliest moments in the universe's history. So that's like the farthest away thing, but again, you don't see it. You know, you put it, you take data. It's in the form of radio waves. It gets collected by sensors, and uh, then those. You know, it's just like you don't see Wi-Fi in your. You know, flying through your house. That's um, there. You can make an, an image of it. You could make a picture of how the Wi-Fi is hotter near your um, your router and uh, less hot near the. You know, less bright near the window or something like that. Um, we do that, but using the whole sky, and then we look. And drill down into where these different galaxies are, and we measured how much dark matter there was towards those galaxies. It was quite quite an amazing discovery. Wow, uh 2.6% cleverer now.
0: <laughs> I still didn't fully understand what you were saying, but I I got some of it. Um, so the question that I'm sure you get all the time, that is unprovable as as we stand here now, but I have to ask it. Um
1: are we alone? Mm. I um, I'm in a minority of scientists that I believe we are alone. Um, and I should make it very clear that I am a minority. Most scientists think not only is there life, there's intelligent life, there's technological life, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm a simple person in some ways. And I like to say, I want to see the evidence. I want to see the data for it. And that's when they'll admit there is no data. There is no proof. There is no evidence for any other life form from the most, um, you know, e- enormous kind of city building, you know, uh, intelligent technological life, broadcasting laser beams throughout the galaxy, or, you know, Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock traveling around on the Enterprise. There's no evidence of that. But more than that, there's no evidence of even some slime mold, you know, something that you might find on on the piece of, a, of cheese or something. Uh, there's no evidence of that, let alone, you know, things with, with huge prosthetic foreheads. Now, lack of evidence doesn't mean lack of existence. It could be that there are no other life forms, or it could be the universe is so big. As I said, traveling at the speed of light, it will take you four years to get to our nearest neighbor solar system, which has some planets in it. We've stared at those planets. We don't believe there's any technology signals coming from it. We will know soon from something like the James Webb Space Telescope launched on Christmas 2021. We'll know maybe if there's some evidence for like atmospheric gas, like carbon dioxide, because maybe they're they're burning fuel to make energy, or maybe they had trees like living life systems that produce oxygen. So we can see oxygen. We can use that as a indicator, a marker, a fingerprint of simple cellular life. Again, there's no evidence that they're, you know, watching Netflix or having podcasts or whatever, right? But instead there is, you know, uh, a lot of belief that there is life. And I say as a scientist, I don't believe in gravity, Leon. I don't believe in evolution. <laughs> I don't believe the earth is is round, you know. I have evidence for it, you know. You can say you believe in God, you believe in love, like you were saying earlier, but you don't have evidence. So by by necessity You don't have to believe in things that you have evidence for. You you have proof of them. But in contradistinction, you can't say that you have evidence for the existence of God or proof of God or proof of love or even what that means. And yet you kind of know it when you see it. So as a scientist, I get very concerned when I hear my fellow scientists speaking because of the vast space of probability that there must be life. Look, the ocean is vast. The Pacific Ocean we can have it we have it here in San Diego as well as there in l a. Um, it's vast. It's not only vast, it's liquid water. It has tons of nutrients. it has um it has an abundance of single celled life all the way up to the largest living creatures on on this planet's you know oceans, these great blue whales. And yet, there's no you know technology. there's no uh, and this is like a proven place where life exists. Life didn't evolve to have uh, technology underwater um, life. there's no, So just having the, a vast space for it, you could say, well, you know, all you need is to look at how big our galaxy is. I mean, you know, I'm a professor. I just convinced you how big our galaxy is. The closest star to us, our closest neighbor is four years away, traveling at the speed of light, which we'll never be able to do. And yet you'll say to me, well, 70% of the earth is covered by water. And I'll say, well, there's no life in it. There's no technology in it, rather. There's plenty of life, but there's no technology. And worse than that, when we do find life in the in the in the ocean, we just continue to dump our sewage into it. In other words, if we discovered life and it's uh, some single-celled organism, that would be very important, very interesting. But I don't think it would really change who we are as a as a as a civilization as much as people think it is. I think if we found you know another technological civilization communicating with radio waves and Watching TikTok and what have you, that would be amazing, um, and that would transform us, uh, and probably in ways we can't even envision right now. But the probability of that is so is so astronomically small that I claim it's it's not impossible, but it's as close to impossible as you could possibly imagine. <laughs> Which is pretty bad odds, if you want. Yeah, like. That is. <laughs> do you
0: ever? Do you ever? I mean, I, I guess I know the answer to this as well, but do you ever look up at the sky and think to yourself, well, clearly you do. So I don't even know why I'm asking this question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Do you ever look up at the sky and look up and think like, what on earth is going on? Like what is happening? I guess, I guess, I don't know. I would assume yes, right? Because this is what you've dedicated your whole life to. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I love, I love to think about that. I, I, You know, in science, we don't typically think about the purpose of something, you know, why it's there. Um, And I don't think it's a uh, a non-relevant question. I think it's an incredibly important question. Um, We typically don't ask why questions in science. We ask how, you know, uh, what, you know, how fast is the universe expanding? You know, what is that galaxy made of over there? Um, You know, why can't I ever remember, you know, somebody's phone number anymore? Uh, we ask these questions, but we don't. We don't really look for purpose-based questions from science. The word science. Remember earlier I said sapien means knowledge or wisdom. Homo sapien, in Latin. Well, the word science in Latin scientia means knowledge. It doesn't mean wisdom. And so I think wisdom gives you the whys, and and knowledge gives you the whats, hows, wheres. You know who all the journalistic Ws except for the what. And for that reason, I think we shouldn't look to science for wisdom or for purpose, teleology. You know, as I said, people say that if they saw a slime mold on, on, you know, the planet Proxima Centauri B, it would be revolutionary, radical, et cetera. I see no evidence for that. Again, the way that not only that humans treat the ocean (laughs) or treat, you know, the uh, white rhinoceros, or whatever. But the way that human beings treat other human beings, you know, we're we're talking in a, in a in a time, you know, for the archives if this is is viewed years from now or listen listened to years from now, it's during the, you know, Russian invasion of Ukraine of 2022. Well, it's not the first time Russia and Ukraine, you know, uh suffered tremendous bloodshed caused primarily by the Soviet Union at the time, but the Ukrainian genocide, 8 million Ukrainians. These are human beings, like you and me, exactly like you and me murdered, killed by other human beings, the Holocaust, another 6 million people targeted systematically. That's not like, oh, well, we, you know, we, we burned down a rainforest, you know, living organ as evil, you know, as that could be perceived. No, this is the true paragon of evil that we kill each other. We kill the only known, uh, you know, sentient beings of pure consciousness, Again, Homo Sapien. We know that we know. We know that we're the only ones that know. Our cats don't know. A cow doesn't know. You know, a uh, 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 you know, a Brazilian hardwood tree doesn't know. We're unique, and yeah, we we destroy each other. It's awful, and so yeah, I, I think it's important to look at it as as uh, in context. It's incredibly important to do it, and I'm in, in, inspired by my colleagues who study the search for life in the universe. I don't see any evidence for its current existence, and even in the most primitive state, I don't see further evidence for it being technological. Obviously, and uh, three, I wonder about how we would treat the inhabitants or other entities that would exist in the universe simply based on you know, as they say, past performance is not a guarantee of future you know returns. But I think in a human beings' case, it's we're a mixed bag.
0: You know, it's interesting you say that there's no evidence. Um... Prior to Columbus leaving in 1492, there was no evidence that
1: North and South America existed, but it did. True. True. I mean, uh, you know, people say, Oh, there's no exact uh, evidence. I thought I was afraid you're gonna say that the earth was round, but oh. there was plenty of evidence for the earth <laughs> being round. But um, no, you're right. And and you know, people say, Oh, Columbus discovered America, <laughs> but of course, there were like natives watching him discover them, sure, right? Sure. So they existed. Now it's true. And Arctica um, has no inhabitants on it. So it truly was discovered in the heroic age of discovery of the late 1800s and early 1900s. It was spotted only 120 years ago by ship. And the South Pole where my telescopes are located, that I built originally a bicep telescope, uh, that wasn't reached until 110 years ago. No, it was reached in like, you know, my great-grandparents' lifetime. <laughs> it wasn't like Columbus or something like that. So it is true. There are places on the globe that are, you know, kind of unexplored, unreached, and, and that's wonderful. Um, but, you know, again, just mere space. Uh, here, that's actually brings up a good, a good point that I maybe neglected to make or amplify. We didn't know one-seventh of the continents existed, and yet there's almost no life on that continent. In other words, if you say, like, Imagine like you say, oh, we're going to discover seven of the, of the, of the inhabitable land on earth. And there are people right now that live on it. Guess how many people are in Antarctica, the whole continent, as we speak? 158. Oh, uh, very close. Yeah. That's, uh, that's very close. Under, under, under 200. Okay. <laughs> the, and we're speaking in the middle of their winter or the beginning of their winter. In, uh, in March, uh, March 21st is the beginning of fall. Mm. And then the sun sets on that day at the South Pole and doesn't come up again until the first day of spring, which down there is September 21st. So there's like 200 people on an entire continent larger than the size of Europe. And yet, if you said, well, well uh, what if I just told you you're some intelligent alien? We just discovered a new continent. Oh, so would you think, how much do you think the population of earth just goes up? Well, by, you know, 14%. Nope, it went up by zero, almost nothing. (laughs) So just having the capacity, even on an inhabitable planet, you know, where there is, you know, some liquid water down there and, and, and so forth um, there's life, but it's not like human beings, not like naturally evolving technological life. So again, potential existence isn't actual existence and lack of evidence isn't lack of existence, but they can sometimes be interrelated. Yeah. You
0: know, clearly the producers put you and me in touch because I love space and yes. I love astronomy and all this kind of stuff. That's heard, like, we could be here forever, but I'm going to ask you one final question. Um, what do you think that looking at space can teach us on earth?
1: What are the lessons? I think that looking into space can teach us uh, about the, the fragility and the beauty of life and that it doesn't have to be this way. And you, you could either take that um, as a, you know, kind of maybe a motivation. Again, it can't be perceived as evidence for God, but you, if you are spiritually inclined, you could say, "Look, we could be as many of the, you know, the preponderance of animal life form. Again, I don't like that word, but when it applies to human beings, but let's just use it. The preponderance of animal life form of life on Earth didn't have color vision. Now, I have color vision. I'm, I'm thankful to say. You know, hope hope many people do. I know some friends are colorblind, whatever. But the potential for color vision is is in some sense superfluous. There are plenty of." animals. My pet dog doesn't need color vision and it gets around just fine. And he seems to live a happy life, although he's ignorant that he's going to die someday. And I aim to keep him alive as long as possible. So now when we look at that, we could say, well, it's kind of an accident. It's evolution. It's done for, you know, survival of the fittest, those that had color vision, you know, exceeded, blah, blah, blah. but at night our color vision is basically useless. Um, the naked eye can't really perceive very many colors at night and that's why we have uh, these these rod cells which are older and those are shared by dogs and other animals and those to see intensity black and white and the fact that we can see other things and that we can see using our mind's eye when we connect it to a telescope we can see these other worlds like the moon and I'm not talking about like seeing Proxima Centauri B and as an astronomer even in la you leon should get a telescope if you don't have one because you can see the exact same craters on the moon the same rings around saturn the same four bright moons of jupiter with a telescope from downtown la um any night of the year that's clear and the and those objects are out and those three or four objects they revolutionized our concept of humanity more than any other aspect or branch of science i claim because it's so visceral you can't reproduce What it felt like to discover the Higgs boson, unless you happen to have like 12 billion euros lying around and you could have wait seven years (laughs) because that, and it didn't take place in one instant, but you can replicate exactly identically viscerally the way that Galileo felt when he discovered those objects for the first time in human history. You'll feel as he did. You didn't make the discovery first. He did, but you're feeling what he felt. There's no other science to my knowledge where you get that experience. Oh, I discovered superconductivity. Yeah, well, you need liquid helium that operates at 454 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. I hope you have some of that lying right. No, you, you can't do it. But astronomy is unique. So I tell parents, please get your kid a cheap telescope. Go on Amazon. One day, Leanne, I'm going to make Keating brand telescopes. Uh, and I have a video called The Gift on my YouTube channel where I talk about what it's like. And, and, the, and I give a buyer's guide for cheap telescopes. Nowadays, they have telescopes like I I would have had my mind blown as a 12-year-old when I got my first telescope with GPS and smartphone adapters, and you can post it to Instagram. and It's incredible. But those discoveries that you might give to your children or grandchildren can change our life. It did for me. Just looking up and realizing your mind is connected to your eye, and you become a scientist whether you like it or not, and you feel what it's like to make discoveries, because you don't care that someone else saw it behind this before you. You're just looking at this magnificent set of rings around Saturn and these little points of light surrounding Jupiter and these huge mountains and deep craters on the moon, some of which contain shadows starker and darker than anything you've ever seen on Earth. And again, you can see that from LA. I saw it from outside New York City as a 12-year-old. It changed my life forever. So I'm asking people go to my website briankeating.com. I have a buyer's guide. Search on buyer's guide on my blog uh, for a telescope, and you'll be able to get some you know some tips on how to get a telescope for you or someone you love.
0: Brian, I'm going to go and buy a telescope. I actually had a telescope in my old house, and I would use it, and I would look at uh, the sky, and it would really you know inspire me and, That's awesome. and, and make me even more curious. Yeah, I was yeah. in Arizona a couple of years back and and uh, there was a bit it was a bigger telescope I was in the middle of nowhere and uh, we were kind of like on a stargazing tour and they showed us they said look through the telescope and you can see the rings of Saturn and it is quite extraordinary it you is. can see the rings of Saturn they're there
1: and it's just pretty amazing so unbelievable it's so it's so visceral when you feel it and when you show it to somebody, after you do a little bit of research, just stay one page ahead of that. It's an old professor's trick. No, no. You'll change your 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 life, even if you don't become or they don't become an astronomer. I mean, how many people can do it? There's more professional NBA players than there are professional astronomers that do what I do in America. And yet, it could change your life because it changed the way they think about humanity and our place in the literal cosmos in which we live.
0: Beautiful. Well, thank you very, very much. Uh, it was pleasure. a true pleasure to chat with you. Um, And uh, if you ever find your way up to uh, Los Angeles, please let me know and uh, I'll ask you more questions. That would be a treat.
1: And thank you so much.
0: Thank you.